Welcome to our podcast, Oncology Morning Commute, Antibody Drug Conjugates for Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. Are they ready for prime time? Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals and Daiichi Sanko Incorporated. In this episode, Dr. Alexander Spira and Dr. Joshua Savari discuss exciting developments in targeted therapies for non-small cell lung cancer. Specifically, the promise of antibody drug conjugates as treatment for this disease. But are they ready for prime time? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash solid tumors three. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Spira is a medical oncologist in the research department of Virginia Cancer Specialists in Fairfax, Virginia. Dr. Sabari is an assistant professor of medicine in the Department of Medical Oncology at NYU Langone Health Perlmutter Cancer Center in New York. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Spira will begin our discussion. Hey, I'm Dr. Alex Spira. Uh, welcome to our podcast, and I'm here with Dr. Joshua Sabari uh, from New York University School of Medicine. Thanks for joining me today to talk about antibody drug conjugates and non-small cell lung cancer. It's a pretty exciting time for us as these targeted therapies are really coming in to play. I guess some of the background here is, you know, we still, we've got a, a lot of new treatments for non-small cell lung cancer, and I think we keep looking and finding new and new mutations. You know, there's been a couple of new approved drugs in 2021, and there's a few more drugs coming down the pike in 2022 as well. Josh, do you want to talk a little bit right now about, you know, some of these uh, newer things such as HER2 mutations? Yeah, so, you know, HER2 mutations remain a really important and sort of under sort of appreciated area um, in lung cancer. About two to four percent of my patients in clinic uh, have a mutation in HER2, most commonly HER2 exon 20 insertion mutations, but we also see HER2 amplification, we see HER2, you know, uh, overexpression, for example, as well. And to date, there remains no FDA-approved match-targeted therapy for these uh, patients. So, Alex, how are you treating your HER2 patients in clinic in 2022? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, standard of care right now is carboplatin, pemetrexid, and then second line, probably docetaxel, obviously first line with an immunotherapy. You know, I think both you and I and many of us, uh, clinical trials are always number one. I, we, we, we can't start a discussion at all without saying find a clinical trial for patients. Uh, you know, for me, it's been interesting. You know, trastuzumab deruxtecan, which there's some data for right now, is actually on NCCN guidelines. So I've been occasionally able to get it and use it for those HER2 uh, mutations. Again, it's a small subset of patients, so not a lot of them. But I've been able to use it uh, a little bit before uh, and get it. Have you used it yet? Yeah, I've actually used it in the second line setting and I've actually used it in my practice in the frontline setting now based on some of the data that we've seen, again, off-label here. But, you know, let's take a step back. I mean, lots of targeted therapies in HER2 from the breast cancer space, and we've been utilizing these in lung cancer, you know, like TDM1, for example. Um, and really, you know, response rates have been low, in my opinion, and response, you know, duration has not been durable. We know these drugs don't get into the CNS as well. What about these ADCs? I mean, what's different about them? You know, to me, the ADCs are a completely different world. Uh, you know, they're just starting to make their headway into lung cancer. 
you know, they've been in the breast cancer world for quite some time. I think it's a couple of things. I think in the lung cancer world, there's been a realization, you know, the, the breast cancer world has always been HER2, right? And it's HER2 positivity, IHC and FISH. And it's really only the advent, I think, with next generation sequencing that we really identified the subset of HER2 patients that can probably benefit. Again, as you pointed out, the most common mutation is this HER2 insertion mutation, exon 20. There's a few others as well. But I think getting away from that concept of just IHC and FISH, which we're also accustomed to in the breast world and realizing there's a subset of patients that in fact may or may not be HER2 positive has really guided the change. That obviously in conjunction with the fact that, you know, we have this new thing called ADCs. Um, for those of you, you know, in the lung cancer world, don't think about this a lot, you know, these are antibody drug conjugates. And what they are is an antibody against the target. You know, we used to have just naked antibodies, um, which usually works by ADCC, antibody dependent cytotoxicity, uh, cytotoxicity, or other mechanisms. But, you know, now with technology, you can take an antibody and hook it up to a drug. So I described it as the nuclear smart bomb, right? You can just literally take a smart bomb of chemotherapy and hit the cancer cell directly. And they really drive a lot of change because not only are you just hitting the antibody, hitting the target, but you can actually develop very potent targets with very potent amounts of chemotherapy directly delivered there. So it's a new concept. Again, we know about it in the breast cancer world. Uh, there's some compounds now in leukemias and lymphomas, but this is really the first uh, entry into the lung cancer world. Uh, and to me, they're, they've been game changers. Uh, you used them, I've used them as well, and there's been some really good data so far. Have you run into any uh, reimbursement or any uh, other issues such as that, Josh, so far? Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, once it was NCCN recommended, it's been a lot easier to prescribe these agents. But for many years, I've been using agents outside of the lung cancer space, extrapolating from other diseases. And oftentimes with a letter or a, a phone call to the insurance company, uh, you can get approval here uh, of these agents. And I think the point being is in the targeted therapy space, you really want to focus on using a targeted therapeutic. And these ADCs are laser-focused, you know, delivery of a very potent chemotherapeutic, a isomerase inhibitor, uh, um, you know, with the sort of guidance of this antibody. Yeah, no, I think one of the, easy, the things that's amazing to me is just the technology here, right? I mean, in concept, it's just a drug and an antibody. Uh, should be easy, right? But these technologically are super complicated to make. There's this bridge I described as this linker. And the linker is super important because that really is what makes this super toxic uh, warhead chemotherapy uh, not leach into the system, which is where some of the side effects come from. So I think we take it for granted how complex these are. It's almost become second nature. And you can almost identify a whole new approach to all of cancer treatment just based upon all the targets uh, that we know. Have you used any other drugs in HER2? Have you been a part of any other clinical studies? Yeah, so there are many HER2 TKI, tyrosine kinase inhibitor. These are small molecules uh, such as poziotinib. Poziotinib is a you know, EGFR and HER2 exon 20 inhibitor. And we've actually seen pretty good responses, you know, initially in that 40, 50% range, but more recently in that 15 to 20% range, mostly due to toxicity, you know, inhibiting both EGFR and HER2 wild type leading to rash and diarrhea. So, you know, these ADCs or the ADCs that we're going to talk about today, you know, seem to be far better, both with response rate as well as durability, but more importantly, the toxicity profile. Curious, what are your thoughts on poziotinib and, and sort of where it plays out in the HER2 space in 2022? You know, poziotinib is, is an interesting drug. Uh, it's been around in clinical trial for quite some time. Originally developed for EGFR, exon 20, as well as HER2 exon 20, and just had a tough time with the side effects of it. We had it in clinical trial here, and uh, we're on a podcast, so you can't see Josh shaking his head, but we're all acknowledging that this has been a little bit of a tough drug uh, to give. It did reignite the interest in some of these HER2 mutations, 
but you know, I've given it on clinical study and some of the data really suggests that it has activity there, which is super interesting. I think one of the uh, nice things about a TKI more than an antibody, if you can get the TKI to work, is that the TKIs are probably going to have more CNS activity. Uh, not necessarily, and there's many instances, as we know, that TKIs don't have CNS activity, but we all think is the antibody molecules as being too big. So there is some draw to having a small molecule TKI, aside from the fact that it's also oral, makes lives easier for our patients. Uh, so there is some draw there, but I, I found posiotin to be a bit of a tough drug. There's also some of the research in some, of some other drugs as well. Um, you know, I think there's some studies with niratinib, there's some uh, other ones as well, because as we realize this, everybody's kind of looking back at their old portfolios and looking at some of these as well. Uh, other thoughts there, Josh? Yeah, I mean, I think drugs like niratinib, pyrotinib, and, you know, some of the older inhibitors like lapatinib that we were using, I mean, these two have similar side effect profiles of rash and diarrhea. And, you know, although it's an oral agent and patients oftentimes do prefer oral agents. And for us on our end, you know, if you can get CNS activity, that's phenomenal. But I think the toxicity profile of many of these HER2 TKI uh, far sort of outweighs the potential benefits here. So, you know, I, I do think there's a strategy to develop better, you know, HER2 targeting agents where we don't hit uh, HER2 wild type. Uh, but for now, the ADC data looks far better to me uh, than what we have in the TKI space. Where do you think this is going? I mean, so now we have some activity here, you know, there's stuff, you know, do you think these drugs can be combined with chemotherapy and immunotherapy? You know, obviously we're all concerned about overlapping toxicity. I mean, there's of course a certain nicety, right? I mean, the gold standard in oncology is you identify a target, you have a drug that hits the target, right? I mean, this is as good as things are gonna get. Do you think, number one, do you think this is gonna likely move to front line? Do you see it being given as combination? Do you think these ADCs can be given in combination with other therapies as well? Yeah, it's a great question. First off, I'm really not a believer in immunotherapy in this patient population until you've exhausted all options. And the reason being is that, you know, we've seen high rates of toxicity in the EGFR as well as the ALK space, right? In, in folks who have received TKI or even some antibodies potentially uh, followed by uh, receiving a PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitor. So I really, I really worry about the combination. We've seen some toxicity leading to even death with the combination strategy. Again, we still have not figured out how to get these patients with driver alterations, usually younger, healthier, never smokers uh, to respond well to immunotherapeutics. That means there remains an Achilles heel uh, sort of in our uh, drug development uh, opportunities. Um, but thinking about combining with uh, chemotherapy or small molecules, I think there's rationale to combine an ADC, you know, like trastuzumab, druxtecan, with a small molecule, particularly for the CNS activity that you mentioned. You know, I do worry that these large ADCs do not have good CNS activity. Again, we don't have great data to date, uh, but just given the size of these molecules and, and knowing antibodies uh, that we've seen in the past, these drugs don't have great activity in the brain. Yeah, and I think that's going to be one of the issues. No, I, I agree completely, Josh. I think we are not likely, you know, it's going to be tough to combine some of these drugs as well. I, like you, am a firm believer in that these patients should not be getting immunotherapy drugs. Um, I, you know, we, we, they should not work in, in, in theory um, as well. And I also think there's some concern. I think one of the class side effects of many of these drugs is pulmonary toxicity. So obviously there's a little bit of overlap with immunotherapy as well. And obviously the day you stop an immunotherapy drug doesn't mean it's still not in your system and you can have some of those lingering side effects as well. So to me, I'm kind of thinking about it as frontline right now, maybe with chemotherapy by itself. Uh, the challenge of course is getting these biomarker tests back in time so you can make a first line treatment decision, especially to get these clinical trials going. Uh, any, any other thoughts there? 
Yeah, agreed, agreed completely. I mean, one of the common things that I think about in, in this space is, you know, sort of durability, right? I mean, with TKI, you know, you know, people oftentimes, you know, sort of complain that, you know, you don't cure patients. These are not durable responses. And I always argue back, you know, two, three years, for example, on a therapy like osimertinib, that's quite durable, in my opinion, and good quality of life, most importantly. But with immunotherapy, you know, you see, you know, some very durable long-term, even curative, you know, sort of cure, cured. How do ADCs fit into this space, Alex? I mean, what do you, what do you think about ADCs here? Are, are we going to be curing patients with ADCs? I don't think so. I mean, I think the long-term cures in the lung cancer world are from immunotherapy that by the constant suppression of the immune system, I kind of view this as chemotherapy as well, right? I mean, they work their defined time and then they're done and you develop resistance. And unfortunately, when you're dealing with any kind of a molecule, you know, HER2, EGFR, ALK, pick a targeted therapy, you know, the cancer is kind of like a bacteria. It's trying to mutate to become resistant and you're just going to get a secondary and tertiary mutations. Now, it'll be interesting, you know, how do you combine things, right? I mean, can you look at combinations of therapy? Uh, you know, can you combine uh, a TKI against HER2 with a HER2 antibody? Right. I mean, if you don't have a lot of cross reactivity there, is this something you can reasonably do and kind of hit it at two points? Uh, you know, we're talking about another antibody in a few minutes as well, patrinamab, which is a HER3 antibody, right? It's a HER3 antibody used for EGFR. So that's actually working on the downstream signaling cascade or heterodimerization or something else. So there might be other things you can do to expand it. Uh, so I don't think we're curing anybody with these, unfortunately. I will say the interesting thing is, and you know, I'm older than you, Josh, uh, sadly. By, by a couple of years. By a couple of years. We're both New Yorkers, in case you didn't know. But I'm older. And you know, when I started lung cancer therapy in 2003 is when I started down here in Virginia, there were two therapies that we had. I, I kid everybody, carboplatin, taxol, and taxol, and carboplatin. And the median survival of a lung cancer patient was eight to 10 months, if that. And, you know, we've gotten a little spoiled and rightfully so with all these wonderful, wonderful treatments. And now we're actually being a little critical when they're, you know, they don't have, you know, when a drug doesn't have brain penetration or when a drug doesn't have a cure rate or that tail to the curve or, you know, a response rate of a targeted therapy is not 95%. It's, it's wonderful. It's great for patients. It's great for the field. It's great for the science, but it's kind of, you know, a little ironic that we're, the standard has become so high over the last couple of years, especially for us old farts. Yeah, Alex, that's a great point. You know, I'm I'm trained in a generation where, you know, we're expecting targeted therapies to have 50% plus response rate. You know, we're expecting durability of response in that 20, 24 month range. And you're right, you know, in the HER2 space, you know, we're still in the early days of development, you know, developing these therapies. So, you know, response rates that are in the 50% and durability of eight, nine months, that's actually quite impressive when you don't have any targeted therapies that are approved uh, in this setting. And again, I mean, going back, you know, 15 or 20 years when all we had was chemotherapy, I mean, that was really a different era. I mean, we commonly see patients living three, four, even five years now with these uh, driver alterations. So we've made huge, you know, sort of improvements and sort of extending people's lives. But I, I think we need to do more. And, and I agree with you. I, I think that the sort of combination strategies are going to be important moving forward. Um, but I also agree that these ADCs are not curable, right? And I think that's an important point. These are designer, laser-focused administration of chemotherapy directly to the cancer cell. And, and that, that, again, that's a huge improvement from where we were even you know, three or four years ago in the HER2 space. Yeah. So where do you think we're going with some of these things? I mean, uh, what do you kind of see as the next... Uh, goalposts that we're going to see? Is it moving to these the front line? Is it with chemotherapy? Or is it just newer drugs? Yeah. We're just now going to move on. I mean, the whole trastuzumab, the Ruxtecan conversation is super unique, right? I mean, uh, there's, you know, the Deruxtecan uh, warhead is being used across multiple, as we'll talk about in, in the next podcast, 
across multiple different antibodies. So do you think it's going to be better ADCs? Do you think it's going to be combination? What do you what do you think we're going here right now? What would you like to see uh, as the next kind of step? Yeah, so like you mentioned, the frontline uh, approved therapies for these patients are chemotherapy alone, in my opinion, particularly a HER2 mutant patient uh, who never smoked. And response rates there are 30, 35%, you know, median PFS in that six to seven month range. So with the data that we have for trastuzumab, drugstecan, I, I personally feel that this could be utilized in the frontline setting. We need the data, we need the approval, obviously, uh, but this is something that I have used in my clinical practice in the frontline setting after discussing this with patients, right? 55% response rate, you know, durability in that, you know, eight, nine month range. So to me, that's quite impressive uh, compared to what we have in the, the sort of frontline setting at, you know, in 2022. You know, but that being said, I, I do think we need to improve on, on these numbers and we need to improve also on the toxicity profile of some of these agents. Again, these are the early days. So we're still seeing high rates of you know, grade two, grade three, hematologic toxicity. Uh, and as you mentioned, the linkers are critical. Uh, right? These are cleavable linkers where the chemotherapy should not be administered prior to, you know, engaging with the target, you know, HER2, for example, here, and should be encapsulated and then be in the cell itself. You can imagine, I've worked on ADCs in the past where 15, 20% of the chemotherapy was actually administered systemically. You could imagine that the rate and level of toxicity that you'd be seeing. I mean, Alex, what are some of the toxicities you see with ADCs in general? And, and, and do you think we can improve on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I hope we can improve on it. I mean, that's a, a big question. I think ADCs in general have a couple of unique toxicities. They all seem to have a lot of pulmonary toxicity, uh, and that's a concern. And I will say, based upon the data, remember, as we've talked about trastuzumab deruxtecan, or TDXD, if you can't say it in another way, that's how my breast cancer colleagues call it, just so you know, uh, those of us in the know. Uh, you know, there's probably a little bit less pulmonary toxicity in the breast cancer population than the lung cancer population. Not unexpected, given a lot of these patients have pulmonary disease due to radiation or their cancer, uh, smoking or what have you, number one. So they all have this kind of unique thing that you have to be look out for. It's a fibrosis kind of a picture. And it's one of those things that if you don't actually think about, it, you can easily miss, right? I mean, when you get all these scans, I mean, you know, Josh would probably review five scans a day of somebody on treatment. And how many times do you see possible new subtle infiltrate or interstitial thickening or, or not even talked about, right? Because you have a four centimeter lung mass that hopefully went to two centimeters. But there's a lot of subtle changes. And for me, the clinical indicator is cough and shortness of breath. Uh, so you have to really ask those questions. And if you don't, uh, you could easily, easily miss it. And unfortunately, a lot of it's not reversible. I mean, we've all taken care of, back in our residency days, patients with pulmonary fibrosis and uh, other interstitial lung disease, and everybody's on steroids, and it doesn't do very much. Uh, so the challenge is once you get it, it's hard to reverse. So to me, it's something you got to be asking for, looking out for, asking the patient about, and really not blowing off those subtle findings on CT scans. Uh, the other thing that I think that has been seen with all these ADCs is, you know, what are the side effects of the uh, warhead protein? So remember, there's three parts to an to a ADC: the antibody, this linker, which every every maker that makes these drugs has a proprietary one, and then the warhead. And the warhead can be actually on in various ratios. So if you read these things, they all say, you know, I have a four to one drug to antibody ratio, drug to antibody ratio, or a ten to one drug to antibody ratio. And the idea is the linker holds on to this until the antibody gets to the cell. Well, of course, nothing is perfect. It's also known that these chemotherapies are incredibly toxic. So they're giving in, you know, tiny picomolar amounts only being delivered to the cell. But if any kind of breaks off the linker protein, and that's where that linker stability 
is super important. You start to get systemic side effects. So that's why you get neutropenia in some of these drugs. It's why you can get, for example, uh, sasituzumab uh, is an antibody drug conjugate already approved for triple negative breast cancer and I think bladder cancer. Uh, you get diarrhea because it's an arenotecan-derived uh, warhead. So you have to start thinking about some of these things. You also get some uh, neutropenia with that as well. So those are the things I, I think about. So these drugs are not as benign as a naked antibody. They do have some of the systemic side effects that you need to be mindful of. Am I missing anything, Josh? No, I agree. I mean, you know, we don't commonly use topoisomerase inhibitors in, you know, uh, non-small cell lung cancer. We use it in our, you know, small cell population, and these drugs are more toxic. So I think we have to think about these toxicities. Again, we see them at much lower rates in the ADC world, uh, but I think these are important. So, you know, really focusing on, you know, neutropenia, I think is 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 critical here. Thrombocytopenia is critical. Monitoring your patients, and like you mentioned, Alex, I think you know ADCs as a whole. We're seeing a lot of ILD, interstitial lung disease as well as pneumonitis. And it is true, and, it, and I think it's interesting that we see it less in the breast population, more so in the uh, lung cancer population. And I wonder if it may be related to prior immunotherapy use, you know, or just maybe, you know, having this smoking history or, or you know, pulmonary sort of disease. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. And, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, HER2, like many of these dry rotations, tends to be in non-smokers. So I think of the three or four patients, you know, that, that I've had in the last year or two, three of them are non-smokers. So I'm kind of poo-pooing that smoking idea. Obviously, sure. that made things worse. I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you know, the patients I put on have all had prior IOs. They've all had these things. They've had radiation. But I think it's these are unique concerns. And I will tell you, it's easy to miss. And I'm guilty of it just like I think many of us are, right? You know, they're a lung cancer and they have a, a lung cancer patient with a cough. I mean, if we got anxious about every lung cancer patient with a cough, I wouldn't get anything done and they'd be getting CT scans once a week. So you just have to be super mindful of it and trying to catch it early, which is going to be a challenge, right? I mean, it's going agreed, to be a challenge. Agreed. I think in the COVID era too, we've been burned and I've been burned personally. I mean, you get these sort of bilateral ground glass, you know, infiltrates and is it drug related? Is it COVID related? I mean, even low grade fevers, are they drug related? Are they infectious? I think it's a really, it's a difficult time to practice, but it's also difficult from the patient standpoint, right? There's lots of things that are driving this. And I agree. I think grade one pneumonitis or grade two radiographic pneumonitis is quite common, you know, even outside of ADCs. And, and how do we deal with that? How do we think about that? How do we talk to patients about that? Um, but it is important that if a patient starts developing symptoms, you know, worsening shortness of breath, cough, uh, for example, I, I think that's important to sort of look into that deeper, particularly for patients that are on ADCs or immunotherapeutics. What are your What are your thoughts on potentially combining some of these ADCs with a PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitor? I mean, that's sort of what we've done, you know, with everything else. Is that make sense here? Is there any rationale? Any concerns for toxicity? <laughs> that's a great question. So it doesn't mean if it doesn't make sense, you're not going to do the clinical study because I think, you know, Josh and I have been doing clinical studies now for many, many a year. And I think it's almost if you can combine it with a PDL1 or PD1 inhibitor, those trials will be done, regardless of whether or not there's a rationale, number one. Uh, to me, there's not much of a rationale for that, candidly. I mean, I typically think of these things, you know, the immunotherapy world is driven by tumor neoantigens in response to the immune system in response to a driver, to a DNA mistakes and uh, uh, abnormal proteins uh, seen on the cell surface. You technically have one abnormal protein here. So if you take our gold standard, which is uh, EGFR mutations in osimertinib or ALK fusions and electinib or brigatinib or crizotinib, IOs don't work at all. So to me, I'm against trying it right now. I'm also very concerned about the potential pulmonary toxicity 
as well. I do think those studies have been looked at, especially as we look at some of the other ADCs out there, of course. Uh, there's a trope 2 ADC where they're doing that right now, and I think the phase one has been completed without a lot of toxicity. Uh, and in that situation, I'm a little bit more amenable to that. But for me, if I was advising a drug company, I probably wouldn't push the combination with an IO that much. I might push it with chemo though. I mean, I think as we talk about these long-term durable responses, can you improve the response stage and really drive, you know, you know, we don't think about MRD and lung cancer, they do in myeloma, they do in lymphoma and colorectal cancer, but can you drive MRD down with a combination of therapies? I mean, the response rates here are good. Again, most of the data is in second line, but if you hit it from two aspects, could you really make it even better and get that duration of response from, you know, a year to three to four years, not using the word, word cure. So that's where I would go or combining it with some of these other HER2 agents, for example, tucatinib, or other molecules that are similar, or even multiple different antibodies, right? You can even combine this with, you know, a naked antibody as well, uh, or other uh, things that might heterodimerize as well. That's at least my thoughts. So, yeah, I, I agree completely here. I, I'd be very worried about combining some of these agents with immunotherapy. Again, you mentioned uh, an approved agent uh, being looked at in combination with uh, um, immunotherapy in the bladder cancer setting. And again, the toxicity profiles seem to be okay. So, you know, we we, we do need to see these studies, uh, uh, sort of the data, but but I, I'd not be very excited about combining this with an IO agent. I, I do agree with you, small molecules in combination with ADCs. We've seen a lot of small molecules being combined with bispecifics and regular antibodies. Uh, naked name, I, I think it'd be a, a really, really uh, impressive uh, sort of idea here uh, to combine one of the better tolerated HER2 inhibitors, particularly one that has CNS activity with an ADC. Uh, that would make a lot of sense for patients. Uh, and again, we have to watch the toxicity profile, particularly the HER2 wild type inhibition. But but that that to me seems like the best strategy forward here. Yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, the CNS activity is going to be the really important stuff. So, uh, you know, we talked a lot about this right now. And, you know, I hope from our mouths to somebody's ears listening, we, you know, we just gave a little bit of advice on drug development there in terms of where we think, you know, I don't know if people are going to listen to us or not, but it's great talking to you. And I think in our next podcast, we'll talk a little bit into some of these ongoing trials, which is certainly fascinating to me as well, as well as other molecular targets. So thanks, Josh. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash solid tumors three. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.